0: Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Uh, Last week, we started a series uh, for December, just a couple of weeks, really, uh, called Unparalleled. And we're looking at, in this series, looking at John 1, just for two of those because John gives us the meaning of Christmas uh, without telling the Christmas story. And in doing so, we said last week that John provides what is unique and distinctive about Christianity that is radically different from all other religions and cults, and at least what Christians define as a cult. Um, and that is essentially from John, as you'll see. The dividing line, then, between other religious thinking is Christmas. Christmas is it. So we said that John chapter 1, 1 to 18, is packed with theology. I mean, we could have done lots of different things in John 1. Uh, But we decided to just focus on two center points uh, that come from a literary device that John uses called a chiasm. So uh, it looks like this, John 1, and it has two of them in this text. Uh, the first verse, first and second verse, look like this, so they break down like this. Uh, so that means they're, they're, they're parallel, it's sort of a staircase parallelism is how it works. Uh, so it's either words or sentences or, like we're going to see in a few mo- moments, paragraphs that relate to each other. They just relate to each other. In, for instance, A in the beginning, A down here, in the beginning with God. It's just repeating it. Usually add something to it. Uh, it could be words or entire sentences. But the focal point is the focal point. Right there. So we said in the beginning of this text here that there are the first focus, the center point, is the idea that Jesus was with God and was God. That the Word was God. So we looked at the nature of God first. And we said, no other religion calls Jesus God. Our cults will say that he became a God, but he didn't start out as God. And what John is saying in this text is that Jesus was God before creation. And the verses that follow explain that everything was created through him. If everything was created through him, he was not created. So your cults will tell you that Jesus was created, your monotheistic religions, even your monotheistic religions, which Christianity is a monotheistic religion, but but it sees God different. All of them see God different. Uh, So Islam sees God a certain way, Judaism sees God a certain way, monotheistic. Only the New Testament, only Christianity sees Christ equal to God. Prior to creation, and now, God God is one, but he's three. So the Trinity is unparalleled, and there's no other religion that sees, and not even the cults. So in terms of the nature of God, uh, we see Christianity is unparalleled. This, to me, is what makes Christianity provocative. I want you to think about the significance of that, because it has significance. We're going to see a little bit of that today, but uh, it stands out above every other religion, because um, the moment you put Christ in that category, and then you put him here, everything about religion, philosophy, salvation, everything changes. You can't say, well, Christianity is a little like everything else. They're radically different. Uh, And none of those monotheistic religions, by the way, Judaism will tell you they're a monotheistic religion. In other words, they believe in one God, but their monotheism is different than anybody else's monotheism. So uh, Christianity just stands out unparalleled. That's why I said to you last week what C.S. Lewis said about the Christian faith. That we trust not because there is a God, but because there is this God. It's Christianity. It's the God of Christianity that is unique and stands out above the rest. And it is this God that is appealing. Uh, so we talked about that a lot last week, and this week we're going to look at the second one. In the second one, there's actually in the entire prologue, the entire paragraph, verses one to eighteen, there's also another chiasm, and it looks just like this. So the first one talks about being in the presence of God. The last one talks about being in the presence of God. Here it talks about John the Baptist. Here it talks about John the Baptist. So the entire prologue is one, and then right at the center of it is this verse here, which you know that's the focal point. And within that focal point, there is this focal point. He gave them the right to become the children of God. Whoever this God was that existed before creation, that created everything, and that John is going to describe, came to to the earth, it was He's the one who gave people the right to become the children of God. That's our second point. So now we learn why he came. We learn why he came, and we learn what it means. We said this is the highest possible religious thoughts you can have. The highest spiritual thoughts you can have are, first of all, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We talked about that last week. If God came here, that's the end of philosophy. If God came here, it's the end of philosophy. Because we now, we don't have to look for meaning anymore. We don't have to try to figure out what life is about and how to get to God and how to relate to Him. Because He came here. He came here to tell us. And then we said it was the end of religion because... If he came here, what he's about to do we said that uh, this text tells us that he brought grace, and Christ is grace. Moses brought the law. You could try to keep it all you want, but you can't. What you needed was grace, and Christ brought it. So that's the end of religion. That's the end of me trying to figure out what I have to do to please God, because Christ brought that as well. So we're talking about the highest thought. And then on top of not only did the word become flesh, John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's unparalleled. You've never heard it before. You've never seen it before. No other religion comes close to saying that. No other cult comes close. They come close. But Jesus wasn't God when he got here. So God didn't come. You say, what's the significance of that? Well, we talked about it last week. If you're a trinity and you're a love and you're loving, what drives creation? See, if you're a single God, if you're monotheistic, if you've, got a, uh, you've got to believe in monotheism. You've got a single God. You've got a God who's one. But because he doesn't have anyone to relate to, he cannot be called love. So because Christianity is a trinity, there's only one God, but they're a trinity. One God, one in essence, three persons. They can function in a relationship. There can be love. You can actually say of them, God is love, because they have someone to relate to. You can't say anyone has a mono, a a God, a single God by himself cannot be called love. He can't even love. There's no one to love. You might say, well, he can learn to love. Well, that's great. Then he's going to have to create in order to learn to love. That's not Christianity. God doesn't create in order to learn to love. He created out of love. That's why, that's why this can be said. God already loved. He already loved, and he created out of love. Love was the reality, shapes reality because of the Trinity. It completely changes everything. I love this, another quote by C.S. Lewis. This is truly one of my favorite ones. Although I have many of, many favorites from him. Yes, C.S. Lewis says this about Jesus. He did in the wild weather of his outlying provinces that which from all eternity he had done at home in glory and gladness. When he came to earth, when he came to earth, he didn't do something he's never done before, is what C.S. Lewis saying? Of course, coming to earth and becoming man was something he had done before, but what he did here in sacrifice and love and service, he had already been doing in all eternity. He had already been doing it. That's what C.S. Lewis is getting at. He was already in a loving relationship. He was already serving. They were already relating in an infinite, intimate way. And all he did was bring it here. And so C.S. Lewis will argue that what God did was open up the Trinity to human beings when he came. That's what Christmas is about. Christ bringing that love to here, not finding love when he got here. So that's what makes this unique, and that's why you see this, uh, well, where is it? Let's see. That he gives them the right to become the children of God. He gives them the right to become the children of God. That's why he came. So John's two points are Jesus was God, he created the world, and then he came into this world, as we're going to say. And he came into this world because he loves and he wanted to make human beings his children again. That's the essence of Christmas, unparalleled. Not taught anywhere. No one's saying that. And part of the reason that Christianity would argue about that and what makes it so provocative is man wouldn't have come up with it. Man couldn't have come up with it. Go back as far as you want, as early as you want to the first philosophers the first religion. Nobody thought of a God loving human beings enough to come do this kind of thing for them. Human beings are entirely, well, I'll explain that in a minute. I won't say it yet. We'll see. So now let's let's expand on what he came for and show you how salvation is unparalleled what Christianity teaches about salvation. So let's look in verses. Let's look in verse 10. 10 and 11, and then we'll look at 12 and 13. He was in the world. This is what it's saying. This God that beg- who created the world now is in the world. That's Christmas. And the world was created by him. He made it and came into it. He wasn't created. He created it. Unparalleled. Hillside. Hillside. but the world didn't recognize him. Important word. He came to what was his own, but his own people didn't receive him. He wasn't recognized, and he wasn't received. All right? So keep that in mind. But... To all who did receive him. You say, what does it mean to receive him? Those who believe in his name. In other words, his character, who he is. Remember, that's what name means. You believe everything about what John John is saying about him. Those he's given the right to become God's children. He's given them the right to become John's children. God's children. So just look at the terms. You can see how salvation is already different from other religions. There's a receiving, there's a believing, there's a giving. And then verse 13, born, children, not born by parents, human parents, or human desire, or human's decision, born by God. So there's a birth going on here, but it's not birth like you've ever seen before. And this is John's way of saying, and I just, I just absolutely love it. There's just, it's, it's not human. It's not human looking. This is why humans couldn't create it. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, Your eyes haven't seen, your heart is never considered. Your ears have never heard it before. It could not have been created by human beings. That's what makes Christianity provocative. So, John is saying, listen, there's literally no middle ground. You're either born or you're not born in God. You're either one of his children or you're not one of his children. We're speaking from a salvation perspective, not creation. We're all his children in the sense he created us. But to become his child in his family what john is going to say to be born again to be saved these sort of these spiritual terms that relationship with god in his family that's only something god can do and that's what he came to do so there's no neutral ground and it hinges on the incarnation So, here's what I mean by that. Uh, so you have the, in, I'm going to put it on here because I just want you to see it. This is how I wrote it in my notes. Incarnation and regeneration. I'm going to show you how they're related and what John is trying to do in this text and what our, what our, what our points mean. You know, our two middle center points. The first point was that God, be- it was God who became a man. That's incarnation. Christ came here. That's Jesus' birth. But regeneration is our birth, our new birth. So, His birth comes before our birth, but His birth makes our birth possible. His coming here in Christmas makes our new life possible. Because he came, he gives us. So John is connecting. You've got to believe in the incarnation. You've got to believe it was God who came here to, in order to get this new birth. Now I'm going to show you another text that's really important, theologically speaking. This is, this is John writing one of the letters, one of his later epistles, 1 John. So the same one who wrote the gospel of John wrote 1 John. And if you read 1 John, he talks about being born of God a lot. This is John's theme. This is his story. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. Test them to determine if they're from God or not. Because many false prophets have come out into the world. John's about to say something unparalleled. Different than what the false prophets are saying. And John's going to say, by this you know the Spirit of God. Here's how you know, guys. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ that has come in the flesh. You've got to believe God came here to save you. If, and if you lose that, then you can't get to here. See, if you don't have, if you don't have, if you don't have this one right, John is saying, you cannot get this point right. And the moment you say something unparalleled, like God came to earth for us, well, then you better believe he's about to do something unparalleled. And that's save. And that's why you got to connect the incarnation, Christmas, with the regeneration, the new birth that a person experiences. This is what salvation is. And that's why, um, <laughs> I love this, i got to read this to you. Uh, Piper says this, Christianity is not the general program for moral transformation that marks uh, most other religions. See, most other religions don't have a God coming here. They have a God up here that you somehow have to morally manufacture a way to get up there. And here's what he's saying. Christianity is not a general program for moral transformation that marks most religions. The transformation it calls for is historically rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. The new birth awakens faith in him, and he is the incarnate one. So you got the, his birth makes possible your new birth. That's, isn't that what, you just sang it at the beginning of this. You know, the first thing we sang was, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, or uh, Charles Wesley, There's a line in it. Here's what the line goes. Born that men may no uh, no more die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. He was born so that we could be born. That's the new birth. You say, well, what's the new birth? Well, that's what we need to spend a little bit of time on, thinking through what does it mean to become to become God's children, according to verse 13, to be born. Uh, what, what's that mean a little bit? So let's talk about that for a second, uh, because it's unparalleled, and you're going to see how. Um, when we talk about being born again, that there, it carries a lot of weight, and especially culturally, because most, most people, uh, when they think about... The people who have used the term born again, you've seen it on television, you see all, you see, it's either some needy or crazy guy claims to be born again, typically in culture. And you're happy for him, but you don't want him to live next door to you. You know what I'm saying? You're happy he was born again, you don't want him as your neighbor. So born again has sort of create, gotten this idea that some wacky dude has found God and he's even more wacky now. Okay, When my dad first gave his life to Christ, and my dad would qualify as wacky, uh, my mother, for the longest time, who couldn't understand what Christ had done in his life, because uh, he was a you know, drug addict and there was lots of issues with his life, and he found, his, he found Christ in a rehabilitation center. And uh, my mom would say, well, he went from drugs to women, drugs and women, and then he found God. So he's just one of those needy people who just needs something, and born again is it. And so it just sort of has this, you know, just some guy needs moral structure. I mean, without it, he's in trouble. He just needs something. Thank God it was God. That kind of thing. And uh, so that's sort of what happens. But here's the thing. John is about to tell you, and you can do this on your own, you can go read John chapter 3 because John's going to take this whole idea of being born by God, born by God, and he's going to spend an entire chapter on It's the longest chapter on what it means the new birth means. And here's why <laughs> and here's what John says in that text essentially. If you think about who comes to Jesus to find out about this, it's Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a an older guy, mature, successful, religious. He had everything you would want. The last person you would say in society was crazy or a nut job was Nicodemus. And Jesus looked right at that guy, right at that religious guy, and said, you must be born again. So, What new birth is, is not just for crazy people. It's not just a tagline for people who have found something else, who try to get more religion. There's no more radical statement in in all of your Bible that confronts religion and doing good works than the idea of the new birth. And the fact that he said it to Nicodemus... you must be born again, means, Nicodemus, I'm not calling you to immorality. I'm not calling you to more religion. I don't, I'm not saying you need more moral structure in your life. In fact, the new birth is a challenge to religion. Here's what Jesus was saying to this man who had achieved all kinds of goodness in his life. Nicodemus you have to start over nothing good you've ever done count that is so shocking to the human race you probably hear it right now and you're like "eh, decent news what, what, what are you gonna do but I'm gonna tell you right now push you in a corner And someone asks you if you're better than anyone else or you deserve God's attention or or heaven, you'll come up with reasons why you do and then you'll end up right there in that spot. You'll see your arrogance. You'll see your arrogance if you look hard. See, Nicodemus said to Jesus, we know you're a teacher come from God. No one can do things that you do unless God sent him. And, you know, you get that kind of, you know, if anybody ever says anything that nice to you, you're likely to say this back. Why, thank you very much, Nick. I've heard great things about you too. That's not what Jesus says. Because Jesus is trying to tell him, Nicodemus, I'm not a teacher that's just come to explain what you ought to do in order to get to me. I've come to save you. I'm that's where John 3.16 comes in. Jesus is about to explain to Nicodemus, you can't do it by yourself and nothing you've ever done counts. God has loved you enough to come here and take care of this for you. That's what he's saying. It's unparalleled. That's unparalleled. So it's a new life you get. Since we all sort of start in the same place is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Now think about what that means on both sides of the coin. If you can do all this good stuff and it not count, what happens if you've done all this bad stuff? So it doesn't matter how good or bad or religious you are, you must be born again. Good, bad, or religious, you must be born again. And no matter how bad or irreligious you are, you can be born again. Do you think about that for a second? All of us must be born again, but no matter how bad you've been, you can be born again. And so you got these two human dilemmas. Humans either fall on one side of the coin or the other. Both very self-focused. I'm good enough and God ought to accept me. Or I'm so bad he'll never accept me. Those are your two extremes. That's where humans come up with their religion. Just, just, just look at the underlying basis of all other religions and cults. And it's those two mentalities. It's those two mentalities. I want to read something to you. I read this not long ago. Bono said it. You too. Uh, from you 2 He said this regarding Christianity and, and other religions. He just said this. The thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. And he's right. But they just don't call it karma. Hindus do. But we use karma and we're not Hindu. right so think about it you know what you put out comes back to you you put out bad stuff bad stuff comes to you you put out good stuff good stuff comes to you that's how the universe works eye for an eye tooth for tooth in physics physical laws every creation is met by an equal or opposite one or every action it's clear to me that karma is at the heart of the universe he says, I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet along comes this idea of grace. And it upends all of that. The bad guy's getting what he doesn't deserve and the good guy's not getting what he thinks he deserves. It, it messes the whole human system up. That's what Christianity does. It literally messes up the entire religious system. He says, love Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences. I love this line. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news, Bono says, because I've done some pretty stupid stuff. That's what it does. That's what grace does. So there's, there's nothing you can do so if you were to say to someone, well, if you knew what I've done, Jesus would say in chapter 3, what we learned from chapter 3 is that doesn't put you behind at all. That doesn't put you behind at all. You can really test this theory of your arrogance and, your, and, and how good you think you are by uh, by thinking of the last time you were indignant about someone else's moral behavior. And the thoughts that go into your head are something like, I would never do that. That puts me a little ahead of you. And no other religion is going to walk up to you like Christianity and say, Sorry, you're not ahead. No other religion is going to do that to you. Sorry, you're not winning. What are you talking about? Unparalleled. Grace is unparalleled. And I'll... that's why John says, listen, this is not human concoction. You can't create this birth. Parents, it's not like, it's, in one sense, it's not like human birth." It doesn't come out of human desire. It doesn't come from, you know, just natural creation. It doesn't come from the decision, you know, where you're, you know, a family's planning on having children kind of a thing. That's not how it works. This is John's way of saying to Israel, who were were all about religion and law, I don't care who you're related to. I don't care what you know. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how much better you see yourself than everyone else. None of that has anything to do with the new birth and being born again. So, no one who's born again is cocky. They ought to be the most humble people in the world because they know they couldn't have done anything to get it. It's always a miracle. Salvation is always a miracle. So, no matter how you come at this, none of the good that you've done uh, is going to help you. Uh, so, think about all other religions. The Hindus have four noble truths. That's you know they have karma. Buddhists have the eightfold path in order to reach enlightenment. Um, I was reading this week a little bit in the Quran. Muslims have a code of law and some mandatory pillars that you have to. And, and uh, I was reading again about the prodigal son for an Islam, for instance. In the Quran, it literally says this, Allah does not love the prodigal. Allah doesn't love the prodigal. Because if in, the, in, in their view of the prodigal son, when he comes home, he stays a servant. He works off his evil. That's not Christianity. That's radically different from Christianity. Jesus throws a party for this guy. He makes him a son, a child. And I was reading a little bit about Jehovah's Witness in Mormonism, too, and uh, in the the Jehovah's Witness, witness you you're never secure this is this is true in the muslim too is reading in the quran you're never secure so you don't know if you've done enough until the very end you got to get all the way to the end to know if you've done anything great and so when when you read the quran you see it's sort of never lets you off the hook the pressure's always on to do more to prove yourself and see that's how jehovah's witness are And then the Mormons are that way too. The Mormons, man, I'd love to explain, I don't have enough time to do it. And number two, it's a very complicated system. But no matter how you slice it, it puts all the weight on you. The pressure's on you. But because it's all on you, it can never be definitive. How do you know if you've done enough good? If you're a person who thinks you're good enough for God to accept you, you've got a huge dilemma on your hands. How do you know you've done enough good? That's every other religion and every other cult. So the notion of God's love, Yancey says this, the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct in human beings. That's why it's unparalleled. That's why human beings, that's one of the reasons I'm attra- I was attracted to Christianity. It is not like other religions. It is so head and shoulders above, I wouldn't have thought I don't know anybody. That's why, I mean, one of my favorite quotes is, uh, if Jesus hadn't existed, no one would have been able to invent him. Because human beings don't think of Jesus as God. They don't think of God coming here, and they don't think of God doing it for you, Ever. Even the gods we create, mythological gods, the gods we make up, make up a god. None of them have him coming here. None of them have him being... You don't ever hear Zeus loving. You don't ever hear a god coming do anything for you. They're manipulative. The gods we create are just like us. What can you do for me? What are you going to do for me? It's, it's so obvious to me. Look at, time, look at the difference... Between that and what Titus 3 says about the new birth. When the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared. What's that? What's the appeared? That's Christmas, baby. That's Christmas. That's John 1. When he appeared, what'd he do? He saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but on the basis of mercy. Through the washing of the new birth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's new life. He gave us this new life. Whom He poured out on us, the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us in full measure through Jesus Christ our Savior. And since we have been justified, Hillside, I don't have the words to talk about how important this next line is. Since We have been justified by his grace. We become heirs. That's children. Intimate with an inheritance. It's ours. We're an heir. What he has is ours. Look, with the confident expectation of eternal life. I'm confident in what he did, not confident in anything I do. You see, in every other religion, you can't be confident. You got to wait all the way till you're dead. Surprise! (laughs) If he does it for you by grace, you do not have to be wondering if he did it. Do you see the difference? Do you see the weighted difference in that? It's unpar- unparalleled. It's unparalleled. You say, how do you get it? Uh, yeah, it's time to talk about that. So let's just go here for a second and see if we can read through the, all this yellow stuff. But, <laughs> let's look at verse 10 again. He was in the world, we created by him. Here's, here's the thing you got to do. Here's the thing that's got to happen. It's going to happen. This is how it happens. You recognize him. You just recognize that's him. and You, you look at Christ and you go, yeah, that's, that's got to be him. Because you're going to say even what Nicodemus said before he was born again. Dude, something's different about you. Dude, something's different about you. You came to, and receive him. You recognize and then you receive. You say, what does it mean to receive? Well, John's not finished. He's going to explain it. All who received, believed. You put your... You, you, you acknowledge that that's who that was. The moment you acknowledge that God came here for me because he loves me. And everything about him is true. Not just who he is, but what he came to do. So I can't acknowledge who he is and then say, yeah, but I'll save myself. Yeah, but I'll be good enough for myself. No, I acknowledge who he is. That means I believe everything he says about me, and I can't earn it. He gives me the right to become the children of God. This is sort of a legal standing. That's what he means by right. I give you the legal status of being my child. You can't do that. And once you become my child, come into faith with me. Uh, Now, you can see the way this is working. Just, just hear the imagery of, of being born, you know, uh, be, becoming a child and being born. Just hear the imagery. People who are born, and you know this, I know you know this, contribute nothing to their birth. I've witnessed this four times. Okay? No, nobody says, I think I'm ready to be born. Uh, and, and through none of their effort. They do nothing. Someone else is suffering. Someone else is, someone else is bleeding. Perhaps cussing. Uh, someone else is doing it. But it isn't you. Your little slimy self appears you didn't do a thing. That's what John is saying. The new birth is something that is done for you. And that's why Martin Luther in his preface, and this is quoted, you can find this, uh, but Martin Luther, when he wrote the preface to Galatians, um, he, he literally says this, So then, are you saying then we have nothing to do to obtain this righteousness? We, we do nothing? And then he writes next to it, Nothing at all. That's the new birth. So you become a child of God. Now, very quickly, what happens is God puts his spirit inside of you and you become one of his children. And all of a sudden, when you come alive, when you come alive, and John 3 will use the illustration, the difference between, um, the difference between, because he'll quote Ezekiel 30. To explain the new birth, John's going to quote Ezekiel 36, or Jesus is. The stone and... uh, and a heart of flesh. And you're just going to distinguish between two kinds of hearts. One is a heart of stone, and one is a heart of flesh. And what happens when the Spirit of God comes in you? Here's what the text is saying. We all got a stony heart. It's not alive. It's it's not alive to God. It's a rock. It's about as alive as a rock is, an inorganic material. It can't grow. It can't do anything. It can't respond to society. It can't can't respond to its environment. It can't do anything. It has nothing. So John says when the Spirit of God comes inside you, it gives you a heart of flesh. It's a picture of coming alive. And all of a sudden you want to do things that God wants you to do. All of a sudden you're alive to God and you can't explain how or you can't explain anything because John says it's like the wind. You don't know how it's blowing or where it's blowing. All of a sudden it just comes upon you. And it changes you from the inside out. There's no more trying. There's no more. You know, you could come along with a rock. You could come to your rock. And you could decorate the rock. You could paint it. You could put flowers around it. You can make the stone look better. But it's not alive. Jesus says, when I come into your heart, when the Spirit comes into your heart, I make you alive to me. That can look different for lots of people. For Augustine in 386, for Augustine in AD 386, Augustine was 32 years old and for 16 years of his life, he'll tell you sex was everything. He was just an immoral man. You read him and you hear his story. Immoral man. And one day, I don't know if I have. He's sitting under a tree, and he, he is feeling conviction. He's having a conversation with somebody. He walks out to a garden. He's under such conviction. He does not want to give up sex, and yet he feels the Spirit of God coming upon him. And in August, he's underneath this. It's August, A.D. 386. He's under a tree, and he's got his hands around his knees and he's doing this under a tree in a garden and he's fighting it and he's fighting it and this an emotional torment and he just says there's a moment there's a moment you can read this you can find it he just he just he opens he just he hears the spirit of God saying take and read take and read and he has a Bible with him and he opens it up and guess where he opens it to Romans 13 13 and 14 oh my about no more drunkenness, no more carousing, no more this, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, kill the flesh. And he's sitting there, and he said, all of a sudden, it was like, I was done right there. And my affection for everything else left except for Christ. It was that kind of a battle, very emotional. His new birth experience was that traumatic. On the other hand, you have C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis had just had a lengthy conversation. This is when he was tutoring at Oxford. He just had a lengthy conversation with J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson because he was an intellect and it was all about atheism for him. He didn't believe Jesus was God. They had had this lengthy conversation. He says he went home unemotional and not believing. And the next day he woke up and he was going to take a bus ride to the zoo. He said, I'm sitting on this double-decker bus at the top, and all of a sudden, I don't know how to explain it. No emotion whatsoever. He said it was as if, he says, it was kind of like when you're sleeping, and you wake up, and you're lying there for a moment, and then you just realize you're not asleep anymore. That's how the new birth came on me. I'm riding a bus to the zoo, and it happened in my heart. And the Two of them never went back. One unemotional, one completely emotional. One was a battle to come to Christ. The other one was a, it just came over me. The battle had been done because it was an intellectual battle prior to that. One was a moral battle, one was an intellectual battle. But the new birth conquers both of those. Uh, that's how it happened. I was 14 years old. And I'm 54 today. or oh, Not today. Just in this day, I'm 54. <laughs> and I can tell you honestly, I've never woken up in all of those years and wondered, well, I don't know what I've got to do to please God. I don't know if I want to or not. It's just... Some, the heart changed. It's never unchanged. It never, Pinocchio, you've become a boy. <laughs> you big old stack of wood. Now you're alive to God. That's what it means to be born again. All right, we're late. Bow your heads. Father, there's someone in this room who doesn't know that faith, doesn't know what it means to just let you save and change their souls. God, I pray they'd open their hearts to you this morning to tell someone now that they've given their life to you, Lord, not based on anything they've done, who you are and what you've done. I thank you for that, Father. All we can do is say it's unparalleled. We don't deserve it. In Jesus name. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next.